Hi, I'm Rev. Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be in guest podcast mode again after my retreat. And it's been a crazy couple of weeks because right after that retreat, when I was holding the energy of all these people for four days, I had relatives visiting. And now I'm finally getting back to myself and reconstituting myself, re-energizing myself. The retreat was fabulous. I hope you consider joining next year. Next year's dates are October 17th through 20th, and there'll be more on that later. I really appreciate everyone who's listening. Appreciate everyone who takes the time to do a rating and review or to tell your friend about this podcast, which is a voice of awakening and hope and inspiration in the world as we all are on the path to remember to restore and to recognize our true spiritual natures in this crazy world that we're living in. So let me introduce my guest. My guest is Eldon Taylor. Eldon Taylor is a New York Times bestselling author publishing on a wide range of topics from exposing the darker sides of mind programming and brainwashing to the spiritual search for life's meaning. He's an expert in the area of pre-conscious information processing and has served as an expert trial witness with regards to both subliminal communication and hypnosis. Eldon was also a practicing criminologist for over 10 years, where he supervised and conducted investigations and testing to detect deception. His earliest work with changing inner beliefs was conducted from the Utah State Prison from 1986 to 87, and that included a double-line study. Among other topics we'll be talking about today will be his latest book, Questioning Spirituality, Is It Irrational to Believe in God? Welcome, Eldon. It's my pleasure to join you, Reverend Curl. It's so great to have you. I just love the inquiry that you're on or that your book expresses. In your book, I think you state the atheist view of the world, and then you have a counterpoint, which is, is it rational to believe in God? And I just love that question. I love being in that inquiry. But before we get into your book, I'd love to hear more about your story, how you got to writing that book. But also, I want to touch on your work in mind programming, hypnosis, and changing inner beliefs, because I just think that's so fascinating. So if you're able to weave that into the telling of your story, I'd love to hear some of that. Well, I'm not sure I can read that into the telling of my story, so why don't we bifurcate it and we'll take one and the other, okay? That sounds perfect. That sounds perfect. You know, for years, I, as you said in the introduction, I was a practicing criminalist. And my primary day or, or the work that I would be primarily invested in during a day was supervising investigations and or lie detection examinations. And I often encountered situations where I saw behavior that just made no sense. It had been rationalized away by basically good people that led them to finding themselves in the jurisprudence system headed toward prison. 
I often question the whys behind what people do. And then probably I've done that since I was very little. Indeed, I can remember a neighbor who was visiting with my mother when I was maybe seven or eight years old and told my mother about a divorce that she was going through. And she said something, and the way she said it, I was certain it was a falsehood. And like a dumb little kid with a, a mouth that goes off before the brain engages the consequences, I just blurted out, that's not true. I had no basis of knowing why that wasn't true, really. But it turned out that it wasn't true. I just naturally had this side of me that wanted to understand why people do and say things that betray who you, who you are. They just, you know, when we're not honest with ourselves or honest with others, we have to understand we're betraying ourselves first, last, and always. We may be betraying others too, but we're betraying ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, to make a long story short, in the practice of lie detection, I heard about a study that was being conducted allegedly by the Los Angeles Police Department using a, say, a subliminal message hidden in the sounds of air conditioning or furnace, what's known as white noise. And they were testing this out for the 84 Olympics. The idea being that if there were a terrorist abduction, they would engage on the telephone and they would play this in the background. And the, the scheme would be essentially telling the terrorists, you know, you happen to be in, a, in an infected area. And if you have any signs of dehydration, vomiting, diarrhea, while we're having these discussions, negotiations, be sure you let us know. And that was part of the background for how they would undercut uh, the position a terrorist organization might have if there were abductees, okay? Mm -hmm. They tried it out on the Cadet Academy, and what I heard is, Within three days, they had dehydrated enough of the cadets that they were told to suspend it. Now, I attempted to verify this, and I was never able to get either a verification or a denial. Okay, But it was enough for me to bury myself in what is a subliminal message, and how would that mm -hmm. work, and why? I sent some of my people at the University of Utah Library. Uh, in those days, we didn't have Google and other search devices. You, you use things like Mosaic. And so a, a search on a term could take hours. Uh, librarians would tell you they wouldn't allow you to do it because you could get lost and not be able to get back, okay? All right, anyway, so... I paid a lot of money, and I had all these searches done on subliminal. Just use that as a keyword. Bring back anything and everything you can get. That uh, result was a pile of literature. In fact, I ended up putting all of that together at a point in time back in the late 80s, early 1990, in a reference, a desk reference for other researchers 
And that desk reference is several hundred pages thick of just the synopsis of each of these studies and who ran them. It'll give you an idea of what there was involved. As I looked at that data, it became clear to me that William James was absolutely right. Our stream of consciousness, how we talk to ourselves, that is essentially not just what our true belief is, but a predictor of how we will behave. So if I say to myself, I'm not good, or if I say to myself, more importantly, I am good, and I hear a little voice say back, good at what, Dr. Taylor? Do you remember when? How about? I have a mitigating factor coming from the inside out, my true belief that's challenging whether or not I'm good, whether or not I'm worthy, whether or not I deserve. That happens to a lot of people. Okay. In fact, it happens to everybody at some time in their life about something, and I think multiple. So, for example, in attempting to explain this, say to the inmate population, when we ran this first study that you mentioned, if I were to ask, and I have done this, 100 people in an audience, 1,000 people in the audience, how many of you? would like to earn a million dollars this year. Raise your hand. Almost everyone raises their hand, okay? I mean, like 99.9%. So if I then say to you, all right, understand that I said earn a million dollars, which means you're going to have to do something different than you did last year. You may have to go at risk. You may have to borrow some money. You may have to take a mortgage out on your home. You may have to acquire some additional skills. Uh, you may have to have some advisors. Uh, you may want to create some kind of corporation or limited partnership. And you're going to have to make a plan to have that all happen. And then you're going to have to act to see that it's done. So now I want you to say to yourself, recognizing that, because you understand that if you don't believe you can do it, you won't do it. You won't do these things I talked about, let alone ever do it. So say to yourself, now, sincerely, this year, I'm going to earn a million dollars. And mean it. Mean it. And pretty quick, what you see in the audience is the head shakes no, grin comes to their face, and the reason is they get an interior voice saying, yeah, sure, what are you going to do, rob a bank? In other words, we're not going to do something that we truly don't believe we can do. Now, behind that, we have all kinds of mechanisms that can be self-destructive. In fact, they may have been adaptive when we gained that mechanism. As a child, maybe I stopped laughing because I was laughed at when I laughed. They thought my laugh was funny, so I became rather stoic. But in adulthood, when I'm with groups of people, I'm the party pooper because I still don't know how to smile or laugh or participate. That defense mecha mechanism stops me from being spontaneous. So we have all these mechanisms 
that propel throughout our life, our behavior, operating behind that is a stream of consciousness. Lots of people, for all intent and purposes, are frozen in place in whatever they do as a result of fear or self-imposed limitations. Mm-hmm. All right, it seems clear to me that if we could use this technology to prime that stream of consciousness and thereby change the way you talk to yourself, that we might change behavior. So we went out to the Utah State Prison and we took a group of inmates, volunteers, all of them from the Youth Offenders Facility, explained everything to them, what we were doing, and provided them with programs to use that were designed to build esteem, interrupt passivity rates, lower hostility and aggression. And one of the key phrases, and this is the most important, this is the reason I'm taking all this time in a discussion about another book that has nothing to do with this, to cover this. Key phrase in this was, I forgive myself, I forgive all others, I am forgiven. Now, when I proposed that idea, there was some feedback from custodial people. Now, wait, 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 wait. If you do that, aren't they just going to go out and offend more? But no, you see, the problem is there's two ways to be tied up in the world. Someone can physically restrain me, or I can hang on to a shoelace attached to a doorknob and refuse to let go of it, and I'm just as surely tethered there. Well, beliefs can be like that shoelace. So to the extent that I blame my behavior, and that's one of the things that we learned when we did all the psychometric testing with these people and personal sit-down interviews, it's not their fault. They were, ah, but for the grace of God, there go you. You know, my mother was a prostitute. My dad mainlined heroin, all kinds of stories, displacing responsibility, blaming. There's only one way to cut the thread of blame, and that's forgiveness. So together with these esteem messages and hostility messages, et cetera, anger, we incorporated today what I call the forgiveness set and something that we use in everything that I do. And in fact, for your listeners, if they go to my website, eldentaylor.com, they can get a free forgiving and letting go program, download it immediately and get it in music or get it in a nature soundtrack and, and test it for themselves. You know, I believe that that's where we all must start. We have to start at a place where we recognize that we all make mistakes and there's lots of reasons for those mistakes. You and I started our conversation this morning before the recording about free will. Sapolsky's new book argues there is no such thing. He's not alone in that field. And as you and I talk, my attitude is free will's not free, which simply means that I've got to get into this programming. I've got to change that programming. I've got to create the program, the script I want, not the one that nature nurture has imposed upon me, not the one that all this media out there wants to try and get me to be polarized by. I need to get in here in order to get in here. 
I need to change this script. I need to understand it. And that takes energy. That takes effort. So my career changed. All of a sudden, I wasn't running lie detection tests. People were asking me, how did you do this? Because we interrupted the recivity rate. Uh, the data was robust, so robust on the declination of hostility and aggression that the prison system installed voluntary libraries throughout, from 288 to youth offenders to maximum security. Other prisons cloned it out, like Chowchilla, the woman's facility and in California, and began to do the same thing. Um, it, it, it is a very powerful technology for changing the way I think and empowering myself as opposed to debilitating myself with self-limiting thinking. That naturally led to all the brainwashing stuff because you start looking then at what the media does and you billions and billions, trillions of dollars have been spent by the folks that want to sell you a platform or a product to manipulate your thinking, to get you to want to buy their product or to want to vote for their platform. And those nudges I documented in my latest book on that subject was Gotcha, the subordination of free will. You know, the bottom line is there are hundreds of little techniques that are employed on you every day. And then, and, and then of course, there are the majors. You know, people think brainwashing. What is that, MK Ultra? You know, they drugged me up. They hypnotized me. They, you know, sensory deprivation. No, yeah, that happened. There is an MK Ultra and a whole host of others. And I cover those quickly. But they take a very small section of the book, Gotcha. There are many others that are more important. If I set a, for example, a jar of hand sanitizer on a table, first I'm going to ask you about your views, liberal and conservative. Then I'm going to put you in a holding area, and then I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to have mixed up the questions, but they're going to basically be the same, just not in the same order. And I'm going to have a jar of hand sanitizer on the table. When you take that second one, you will be much more conservative in your responses than you were in the first one. Why? Because hand sanitizer says what? Subliminally. It says danger, germs, disease, caution. <laughs> there are so many little factors. And the nuances to these have been so exploited by those, again, who wish to sell you a platform or a product or an idea, a belief, that it's, it is work to understand them all and then to begin to neutralize yourself so that you know that the decision you're making, the belief you're holding, is not swung by these factors. I find this so fascinating. So, so fascinating. And what I really think is interesting is that I don't think anybody thinks they are brainwashed. They think everybody else is brainwashed. We don't think that we, not, not I, <laughs> I think we're all brainwashed. And it really takes a vigilance, vigilance to, to observe everything 
And why am I behaving like this? And the constant, constant barrage of information. I remember like during COVID, you couldn't go anywhere that wasn't blasting this stay six feet apart, stay safe. It was over and over and over again. That was all, that was all brainwashing. The, the hand sanitizer, it's interesting that that's the conclusion. I keep a distance of hand sanitizer. I think, I think of the poison. <laughs> I think that they're making us all sick. <laughs> but I think that most people do buy into this is, this is killing germs. So what do we do? I know you have more to tell in your story, but I'm interested in your thoughts on how we awaken to our brainwashing. Well, you know, the first thing that I think we have to do is understand all these ways in which we are brainwashed. You're absolutely right, Reverend Carroll. Everyone, to some extent, is a product of information that biases them in multiple ways. Our language biases us. You know, it's, if I live there, if, if I'm German and, I, and I'm on a train and you yell, look out, I'm going to hang my head out the window. But if the reason you yell, look out, is so that I get my head in because we're about to, you know, our very language constructs how we mm -hmm. think. And then we tend to be black and white thinkers, you know, it either is or it isn't. And we take these shortcuts. And if we understand the heuristics of how the brain works, that automaticity, how much of our behavior is automatic, and then we look at the prompts that give rise to the automaticity, like I say, you know, there are hundreds of them, and I list a hundred, more than a hundred, and gotcha. But yeah, and you can get them other ways. You can get them online. You know, you don't have to buy something. And everyone should investigate these. When you understand these prompts, and you understand your biases, then you got the first step made toward trying to make your own decisions. Nietzsche is not one of my favorite authors. But he does, he did say, why is it that we don't choose our own personality? We choose everything else. Why don't we just sit down and make a list of the attributes that would constitute the personality we would like and then begin to live those out? And for years, you know, when I went to university, Psych 101, personality was fixed. Brain cells begin to die at the age of 30 and they don't regenerate. And I could go on and on and on with what today we know is just false to fact. Okay. Hard research shows you can change your personality. So what we have to do is the hard work that underlies the changes we would like to make. I want to build a new building. Maybe I don't have to strip it to the foundation. Maybe, you know, I can take this old building and I can renovate it. Maybe I'm better off to just get to the foundation. You know, some of us, some of us have maybe tried hard enough in our lives to be what I think of as waking up, that we have a general grasp on these things. And I don't mean this in any pointed way. But I'm certain that 
you, Reverend Carol Saunders, have much less work to do than some of those inmates I counseled at Utah State Prison. I'm absolutely certain of that. Okay? I've got a lot of awakening still yet. I know I've, I know I've still got more to go. <laughs> well, I'm sure we all do. We all do. The bottom line is there are incremental differences. And so some of us may have to do more work. Some of us may have more biases, may have been manipulated more. Maybe you come from a codependent background or family. There are going to be more reins on you than if you didn't have a codependent relationship growing up. Um, all of these things matter. We have a genetic predisposition. And that genetic predisposition isn't just an eye color or hair. It's to behavior. This whole field of behavioral genetics has shown us that these behavior patterns exist in genes. So people say, uh, I'm never going to be like my father was. I, I'm not doing that. And then they find themselves doing it. Okay, well, you have a couple of things going on. One, your father probably did exactly what his father did, what his father did. And passing that along is something known as epigenetics, okay? Two, you have mirror neurons, behavioral references, and your learned behavior replicates what your father did in those circumstances. So you have both these forces working on you automatically. So then you behave like your dad did, and you say, I said I'd never do that. Why did I do that? That's the kind of automaticity that we have to understand. And when we, when we do understand that, and where it gains its, its traction, we have an opportunity to begin to flesh it out. And I kind of think of it this way. There is a great power in uncovering this information in a reflective way. So I can think about my surroundings, say, and maybe I work for a conservative employer. And once I understand the prompts, that's right, he has President Bush's picture up in his office. He's a nut about cleanliness. He has, you see, you begin to see that your environment is framing you in a way. In this instance, mm -hmm. it would be towards a conservative perspective, okay? Not that that's wrong, not that either liberal conservative is wrong. Not talking about that. We're talking about you making your own decision about why you believe what you do and why you behave the way you do, okay? Not letting the environment do it to you. So if you get this information all together, then you have the opportunity to begin to rewrite the script to create the person you want to be. So interesting. This is so much in line with my ordination as unity. I'm an interfaith minister, but I'm also a unity minister. And really the basic tenets of unity is that we, well, first of all, that we have a divine spark within us and that we have agency, that we, through our thoughts, can create our own experience of the world. And we can change these thoughts. We can change them. 
and that we need to change them if they're negative thoughts or if they're defeating thoughts or if they're limiting thoughts. And, but I think the question has always been in the how do you do that? How do you actually change those tapes that have been playing for a lifetime? There are a lot of exercises that I outline in my book that, that can assist you in doing that on a day-to-day -day basis. But just becoming aware of it is the uncovering. You know, when I, you think about it this way. You're a child. You have a bad dream. Your room's dark. And you look and there's a boogeyman in the corner. You can see that boogeyman and you scream out to dad. Light door opens and the light goes on. And the boogeyman is how you hung your clothes on the closet door. So you threw a pair of pants up over the closet door and handle. Hey, okay, now I know what it is. Dad says, everything's okay, you're fine. He turns the light off and closes the door. Boogeyman's still there, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to take the pants off the door. I know what it is now, and it's lost its power. That's how important understanding all these things are, because they lose their power over us. Yeah, I love the metaphor of the light. The light shines on the pants. So you see what the boogeyman really was. And it was about light. And that's really what the awakening and awareness and becoming, oh, yeah, I, I do succumb to, to brainwashing. I, I do make these things up in my head. I, I really love what you said, that our beliefs are like the shoelace of the door. <laughs> our beliefs keep us entrapped in the room as much as anything external does. Very, very interesting metaphors. Why don't we pivot a little bit about to your new book? I know we want to talk about that. I feel like I could talk another hour about this stuff, but does that sound good to you? Sure. I'm up to wherever you want to direct me, Reverend. Yeah. I'm very interested. I'm going to have to look at your book, Gotcha, now. So your new book, you shared with me before that you wrote that because your sons had released their religious beliefs when they went to college. Is that true? That's absolutely right. I had two young men who were raised in a very spiritual tradition, non-denominational or interdenominational, however you prefer. And because Gonzaga Prep, preparatory school, which is a Catholic school, is considered to be the best high school alternative in our area. And I wanted my boys to have a leg up. We sent them to Gonzaga Prep. When they came out of prep, graduated with honors, they both of them, they leaned toward Catholicism, but they were absolutely spiritual. There wasn't a question about whether or not there was a God. They went off to a public ivy. They attended the Fred Allen College of Engineering, which is, by most standards, the most prestigious computer programming school and in America anyway, again, graduating runners and became computer engineers, work on artificial intelligence, machine learning, doing excellent. But in school, at university, they learned that God is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch, to use the words of Sigmund Freud. 
It's like having daddy at the end of the hall when you have a bad dream in the dark, to use the words of John Wisdom, the famous philosopher, that it's a Santa Claus. The Santa Claus analogy is one that's often used on campuses today because there is a secular, progressive, mechanistic model that's being advanced by science having to do with you know, human beings, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, combined with this idea that we're just a meat machine, that everything about us can be explained, that consciousness is, is the product of emergent properties and or a side effect of entropy, but totally explainable. That's the direction in universities. Your Santa Claus analogy is used to compare children with intellectually elite. As a child, of course, you believe in Santa Claus. You believe everything mom and dad tell you. You don't stop to think about, well, in a, a flume, this big guy comes down that little tiny space and he brings me a bicycle? I don't think so. Instead, you just accept the story. He visits everybody. Good. You know, as long as, you, as long as you've been good, you get this whole list. You sit on this stranger's lap and empty your soul to it. But when you grow up and you discern intellectually fact from fiction, do you still believe in the Easter Bunny? Do you still believe in Santa Claus? Well, that's what God is. You know, lots of people talk about Christianity in our culture. They talk about Jesus. He had 12 apostles, and he was resurrected. He started his ministry at the age of 32. Well, you know, Horace did the same thing. Do you know that Dionysus of Greece and a dozen other Gods, demigods in history before Jesus have a similar story. Do you know that December 25th, the cult of the great mother worshiped the birth of the sun, S-U-N, because it was reborn? Mm -hmm. and, and so what happens is your, your children come away with all this learning that unfortunately we don't prepare them with. And I was guilty of that too. Okay. Uh, some of which I discussed with them because we talk a lot about philosophy, but a lot of this I hadn't. I just didn't occur to me that they were going to counter that rigid an argument in a, a university. And this is not uncommon. This happens to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Most nowadays. So, they run into logic and historical reasoning. If God is all-powerful, can he build a rock so large he can't lift it? If God is all-good, all-powerful, why didn't he give Adam a perfect will? Instead, he gave him a deficient will. If God gave Adam a deficient will, does that mean the sin is God's? Because it could have been prevented? Or is it Adam's? And, and we get tied up into all this, this 
logical nonsense that believers are very often guilty of putting out there, okay? Omnipotent is an inappropriate word to describe anything because there is no such thing by the nature of our language as something that is all-powerful because it has inherent within it a contradiction, just as the rock too big to lift is a contradiction. We use semantics very often from a history that goes back to the days before flashlights, when we began to explain to our children what an afterlife might be or what motivated a log to trip me, animism. Religion has its own historical development. And sometimes we don't update it. We don't think about it. The people that think about it are the ones that reject it. And then they're the ones that deliver the arguments. So my sons come home. And as Will, my youngest son, puts it in an appendage in the book, Questioning Spirituality, after hours and hours of sitting around and discussing philosophy, epistemology, logic, um, of course, you know, the nature of being human. So we're in everything from anthropology all the way out to genetics, behavioral genetics. Hours and hours, and usually with maybe a glass of scotch or two, they became convinced that it is more rational to believe than not to believe. And they encouraged me to write the book. So the first part of the book, let's just look at what all these atheists say, what their argument is. Consciousness is a byproduct of, you know, entropy. How much traction is there in that? Are there exceptions to it? Is this, this just something that gets stuck out there and people say, oh, well, like, and, and, and let's dissect these things. So first, I'm going to give them to you, then I'm going to take them apart, and then I'm going to show you the advantages of being spiritual, and they are many. So it turns out that, one, it's not irrational to believe in God at all. God, not in an anthropomorphic sense, please. Life after death, a creative force to everything, mm -hmm. all right? I don't claim to know what that is. It, it, I, I believe, as Plotinus said, it's ineffable. We don't have the linguistic ability to describe it because it's beyond the scope of anything we know, okay? Whatever. It is rational to believe that, not irrational at all, and it is much more rational to believe than not to believe. It's not only more rational, it's many, many more times natural. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because the first part of your book, you really lay out the thesis of the atheists, the ones who, who mock the Santa Claus God. And I've encountered many atheists in my life. And I have to say, I do really, really have great respect because of the amount of thought that they've put into it. 
in, in contrast to some others who just blindly believe. So I love that they really thought and they're thinking this and they're really, really investigating. But this idea that God is a Santa Claus God, well, my God is not a Santa Claus God. My understanding of God is not a Santa Claus. My understanding of God, and it may be different from yours, but my understanding of God is completely consistent with science. I don't completely understand it, but there's some energy under everything that is. Something. There's some magnetizing force, some animating force. There's something that is, is that, that life itself. What is that? You know, so to me, God is that amazing energy, and I can't explain it. Science can't explain it. I think science tries to replace God. I find it very interesting that they want to, to minimize God to saying, oh, the Santa Claus God is, is what God is. And so it's a silly thing. We need to annihilate that thought, not even being able to think that everything that they're looking at in science is looking at the energy and the essence of spirit. To me, it's always been kind of a funny contradiction in their argument. Well, you know, you're a minister of unity. Typically, your atheists go after Christians. And behind mm. Christians, they go where there is a solid description of what God is. And it's that description they attack. Now, you just went through telling me God is intelligence energy exists underneath everything. That's a pretty good approximation probably of how most people who study, you know, not mysticism, but the expanded nature of metaphysics as mm -hmm. Aristotle mm -hmm. coined it, that kind of metaphysics. What is it I can say I know for sure about another level of existence? You and I chatted before. One of the compelling forces in my life, and some of the evidence, I, I offer a number of stories of this kind in my book, Questioning Spirituality, is something I call white crooks. And, and by that, William James coined that term. He basically said, if I find one white crow, the axiom that all crows are black is obviously false. I don't have to find mm -hmm. all the crows in the world to prove that there's one white crow. I only need one white crow. Well, we have many, many, many white crows that would attest that there must be something beyond this incarnate state. Okay? In my own life, as a young man, I was headed to a dance, but before I went to the dance, I was going to stop and collect some money from a, a fellow's father because he'd run into the rear end of my car. And he didn't have insurance, and so his dad was just going to pay the bill for it. So I was headed out to this little town called Woods Cross in Utah, and as I crossed the railroad tracks, car died. Though we were a movie script, the arms started coming down and the bells and the whistles. I look up and coming down the track, I see a train. 
Now, in my mind, the first thing I think of is if we try to get out of the car, car is going to get drunk over us. In fact, Connie, the woman that was with me, asked, should we get out of the car? And I said, no, I'm afraid we get drunk over. I'll start the car. The car had flooded. So I just simply held the gas down, started turning the ignition. I knew a little bit about mechanics. I knew the carburation on this car that should start me up and get me off these tracks. But the train was going over 100 miles an hour. And it had more than 100 cars on it. So when it hit the car, much quicker than I would ever anticipated it would have been there, the cattle guard smashed the driver's side of the car. And I mean smash it. It wasn't two feet high. Took the car, drug it down the railroad tracks, spun it around and off. Now I'm in the car, starting the car, and Connie has her hand on my leg. And the train hits the car. Now I'm in a field. And I'm looking over at all these emergency lights on all these vehicles. And it dawns on me, where's Connie? So I start towards those emergency vehicles, but I've got to be, I don't know, 50, 100 yards away from them. I get there, and, and they're not going to let me get close to the emergency vehicles until they understand that I was the driver of the car. Enough time has passed that, I don't know, there were probably more than, a, there were at least a dozen emergency vehicles, police, ambulance, fire, whatnot, there. Traffic was backed up. Fortunately, she was on the passenger side, that they had to cut her out of the car. They have her in traction, and I've got to say, How's that possible? How's that possible? I was in the car. I promise. Connie testified to that in court. I testified to that in court because your parents sued the railroad company and successfully won. 100 miles an hour this train was going. Over 100 miles an hour, they said. Coming through the small town of Woods Cross. Uh, so I'm in the car. And then I'm not in the car. I'm standing in a field. And I'm looking at the whole scene. And whatever has happened between the time the train hit that car and me becoming aware that I am standing, I'm not sitting, I'm not laying, that I'm standing looking at the scene. I don't know. What's that, an hour? Had to be at least that kind of time to cut her out of the car. Yeah. And so that is like a divine intervention. It had to be. Yeah, you call that a white crow. White crow. You cannot explain it scientifically. It demonstrates that there is more than this mechanical meat machine that you want to tell me yeah. is the nature of your secular mechanistic reduction scientific world. Take that and pack it. And I'm not a solo case. There are many, many more stories that, you know, like mine, went through courts of law. You know, that they are substantial stories or with evidence behind them. 
They're not something that you can ignore. And if you can't explain it, and you're not going to ignore it, you have to allow it into your mind space. And then mm-hmm. when you start doing that, you start realizing that there are enough of these, and this is just one example. You can look at a whole number of other areas. The reincarnation. There have been many studies done. One of, one of the more outstanding one by Ursula Over a hundred children. Some of them actually were attempted to be tricked, who had memories of prior lives, were taken to where their memories said they grew up, etc. They identified people. They identified you know, the premises before they arrived. They, you know, they knew far more than was possible for them to even know. And like I say, in some instances, they were tricked. This is a picture of your Uncle John. Do you remember him? I didn't have an Uncle John, and I don't know that person. Mm. When mm. you really look at all the data that exists, you've got so many white crows. To say all crows are black, well, that's a real Santa Claus idea, Mr. Scientist. Exactly, exactly. And I think what happens is that these beyond understanding experiences that either we've had ourselves or we know of, we've read about or we've met people. If you, if you can't let that in, then you are creating your own fantasy. If you let it in, then your, your reality changes. Something has to change. And I think people are very afraid of their sense of reality changing. And once you see something that you hadn't seen before, or understood something you didn't understand before, or experienced something that's beyond the box that you were in before, it's very disturbing. That's the awakening process because now everything's different. But stepping into that is so, it's so freeing because it's like, okay, reality is so much bigger than I thought. And in this case, we can say there's something other than just this physicalness of our bodies and our minds. There is something greater. We don't know what it is, what to call it, but you can't just, once you have that experience that you had in that train, you can't go back. <laughs> if you were there before, you can't, you can't go back and go, that didn't happen, or that's part of the laws of physics. There's another law at play. And so I think that's part of what you conclude in your book is that there's there is this argument for the or rejecting the Santa Claus God, but here's all this other stuff that says, you know what? The rational behavior is to accept that there's something bigger, something more amazing, and something that we would call divine at play here. I don't want anybody to go away with me thinking that I'm anti-science because I'm definitely not. And why I'm very pro-science, and I spend hours and hours in science, okay? So I'm, I'm really talking about a handful of people that can be very loud on the campuses. And this notion of evolutionary process that essentially dictates a secular, mechanistic, reductionism that has mankind 
that personhood as just simply a meat machine. You know, we, we're just a meat machine. That's what I'm resisting. So when I say, Mr. Scientist, please forgive me if you're out there, you're a scientist. It, it, well, don't forgive me if you're one of the meat machine proponents. But if you're not... <laughs> I think science and spirituality dance beautifully together. To me, it's always been like, like two people on two different hills looking at the same thing and having kind of a different experience, but it's the same thing. They're getting to the same conclusion. So they go together. To me, they always have. I think sometimes science can be a little slower sometimes even in spirituality to come to conclusions. But I love how science can then come in and, and say, here are the equations. <laughs> because I think equations and math and science is beautiful. My background's in engineering, actually. I was a chemical engineer before I did ministry. And to me, all of physics and the equations, and to me, math is God. <laughs> it's evidence of God. Like, what a beautiful, beautiful thing it all is. It's perfect. So anyway, I think it really does go together. Yeah, I, I honestly think mathematics is the language of God. The divine. Yes, it's a divine language. And I, as you know from my book you have read, Questioning Spirituality, I use science to talk about the problems that some scientists, those again, they're meat machine proponents to make it simple, hold and or try to get you to believe. And, and, and without the science, to talk about science, you'd be left with, well, I don't know. I didn't study science. So, no, yeah. it, it is... It, it is, you know, what is it? Clifton Matt Fadiman said, and God plagued man with the ability to think. Well, mm. now he said that in jest. Uh, he was the editor of Encyclopedia Britannica at the time that that was said. Here is the choice we have to make, many of us. You know, it was Martin Luther said something like, whoever wants to be a Christian should tear the eyes out of his reason. Well, okay, if you're in that camp, you're not going to like anything that I have to say in my book, Questioning Spirituality. You're just going to hate me, so don't buy the book. Don't borrow it at the library. Just stay away from it, okay? <laughs> if, on the other hand, you don't think reason is a plague it's indeed a gift. It's an ability you can use to decipher the language of God. Well, then, reason becomes that which sets you apart from the rest of the world. So if you are, hypothetically, as some would argue, created in the image of God, it's not because you can run as fast as a cheetah or swing through a tree as quickly as a baboon. It's because you have this faculty called reason. I completely agree. Eldon, it's been wonderful talking with you. I want to add that we will have all of your links to your book, Questioning Spirituality, Is It Rational to Believe in God? And I think I'll also have links to Gotcha, because that sounded interesting in the first half as well. And I'll also include links to your website. 
And it's just been really a pleasure talking with you today. It's been mine. I've, I've enjoyed it very, very much. Yeah, we should have turned the the recording on before because we had a really interesting conversation before as well. So perhaps I'll have you on again and we can talk about some other things. That would be great. I've enjoyed this very much. You have a wonderful day now. You too. And thank you, listeners. I really appreciate you being here. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being. Thank you.